Hey there, you're listening to Humans of Travel, a podcast from Travel Age West. Thanks for tuning in. While you're at it, please check out our other podcasts, The Follow and Trade Secrets. Every week on The Follow, Travel Weekly's editors, journalists, and special guests will go behind the scenes of the biggest travel stories and trends. And every other week, Trade Secrets will tackle travel advisor questions about their businesses, professional development, social media, and more, all with the help of a veteran travel advisor. Find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Emma Weissman, the host of Humans of Travel from Travel Age West. We've decided to re-release a few of our favorite Humans of Travel interviews on the weeks where we aren't dropping new episodes. And you're listening to one of those encore presentations right now. We'll see you back for a brand new episode of Humans of Travel in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Humans of Travel. I'm your host, Valerie Chen. And today I have the distinct honor of chatting with someone who I deeply admire and have spent some IRL in real life time with, Masaveda Morgan. Masaveda wears many hats. She's a travel writer, an editor, a photographer, and a video host. But I think it's safe to say that at her core, she's a journalist who is passionate about sharing the world with others. She worked as an in-house destination editor for Lonely Planet for about five years before becoming a freelance guidebook author for Lonely Planet, which she still does today. Masaveda, thank you so much for joining us on Humans of Travel. Hi, Valerie. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here with you. So did I list all of your hats correctly? Did I miss anything? No, you pretty much covered it. The only thing is um, I was at LP at Lonely Planet as an editor for about four years rather than five, but minor detail. (laughs) Minor detail. We'll round up. What's another year? Exactly. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So you and I met back in 2015, which is absolutely nuts that it's been five years. Um, Crazy. (laughs) On a trip with Mountain Lodges of Peru visiting incredible places in Cusco, Lima, and more throughout the country. Um, I was covering the experience for Travel Age West, and you were there as Lonely Planet's South America destination editor, correct? That's correct, yes. For many people, um, becoming an editor for a travel magazine, especially one as well-known and celebrated as Lonely Planet, is a dream job. Obviously, you earned the role, aka you worked tirelessly to get to the point where you could land such a position. Did you know that you always wanted to be a writer and editor and specifically for a travel magazine? Well, I've always been interested in the written word ever since I was in my mother's womb. Actually, she would say the alphabet and sing to me. She would even count, but I'm not a math person. So I guess that didn't stick. <laughs> um, and even as like a little kid, my parents would sit me down in front of, you remember the preview channel back in the day that would like roll the channels and would show you what programs were on. It was just yes. like text rolling <laughs> on a screen. So yeah, they would like sit me down in front of that. And like, whenever they would turn it off, I would cry. And yeah, it was just my babysitter. And so from there, even when I was in pre-K, my teachers would ask my parents, like, how does she know how to read so well? And they were like, I thought you guys were doing all this stuff. So it's just been words have just always been a big part of, of my life. And travel was always something that seemed like a very far away lofty thing. But I was one of these kids growing up in the late 80s and 90s who was obsessed with Carmen Sandiego. So the idea of being able to explore the world was always something that was very appealing to me. I was always in journalism throughout 
starting from middle school, really, I was on the school newspaper all the way through high school and college. I was the editor-in-chief of my university newspaper, as well as an editor and a designer for the literary magazine. So it's just something that always felt um, right to me. And so did you travel a lot as a kid or did that come later in life? Um, not really, not, not uh, anything outside of going to relatives' houses in the South primarily with my family. I actually didn't uh, leave the United States until I was 25, so I'm 36 now. So it's only been about a decade and some change. So can you briefly walk us through your career before you became a travel journalist, even though it sounds like travel was an interesting thing to you, maybe not you know, at the forefront of your everyday, but more so journalism was essential to your career. Back then, back in the late 90s, I guess, early 2000s, it was still very much like you're either in print, you're in television, or you're in radio. And so I went with print thinking, well, maybe one day I want to get into magazines. I never really had any ambition of being in book publishing because that just seemed like something that was completely unattainable. So I just I went with newspapers because it was kind of the closest thing that could maybe put me in the magazine world. And I found that I actually really hate reporting. Like I, I'm super sensitive and a little anxious. Like, I think I actually had the opportunity to interview the mayor in Savannah when I was in college and I freaked out. Like I couldn't handle the pressure. So I definitely don't have the kind of personality that's very well suited to going out and getting the story like right in the heat of the moment. So I was just happy to be behind the scenes being a copy editor. I've just always been really good at um, wielding words and fixing other people's words and just... Um, I was just a good editor. And so I kind of pursued that. I was a copy editor for a couple of newspapers as an intern. And then when I left the United States for the first time at 25, I went to the International Administrative Headquarters of the Baha'i Faith. I am a Baha'i. So uh, it was an opportunity to go do some service work. I was working as a copy editor for one of the governing bodies of the Baha'i Faith internationally. And from there, I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship to go study in London, and I got a master's in publishing. And after that, I came back to the United States. I wanted to stay in the UK, but it was kind of impossible with the visa thing. So I came back to the US and could not find work for the life of I me. Mean, I was applying for everything, not even getting rejection emails, just out into the ether and hearing nothing. And I saw on LinkedIn one day that Lonely Planet was hiring editors in their Nashville office. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. Because I actually did, um, you know, while I was in grad school, I was doing the whole, you know, book publishing study thing. And I was like, you know, I'm not entirely sure if this is something that really speaks to me, but it would be cool to work for a company like Lonely Planet. Because I had started to travel a bit when I was in Israel. I traveled around Europe a little and in London, it was super easy to get around Europe as well. So I'd really developed a passion for traveling at that point. But that was just kind of for fun. And uh, yeah, I had this fleeting thought in school. I was like, Lonely Planet would be dope because... It's books and it's travel. Right. Yeah. And so then, you know, several months later, I guess almost six months later, I saw that they were looking for editors and like, there's no way this is, they're ever going to notice me. And I, I put in an application. I wrote a super heartfelt cover letter and I applied. My expectations were on the floor. I was like, this is never going to happen. So just keep trying for an editorial assistant, intern, whatever you can do. And, you know, at this point, I had some pretty decent experience and I had a master's degree and I was just feeling kind of hopeless about it. And lo and behold, I was their top pick out of like several hundred candidates. Not surprised. I, obviously. I had I known you that I'd have been like, yep, okay. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And it really was a dream come true. And God, I just, I love that brand so much. And I love the work I was doing. The team I was working with are just some of the most 
incredible people I've had the honor to work with in my career. And after a few years, us editors were given the opportunity to go and do guidebook authoring gigs so we could have an understanding of what we were asking our writers to do. So I sent myself to the Galapagos Islands because that was the one place I hadn't managed to get to yet uh, as the South America editor. As one does. After some time, I thought, why don't I give this a go? And I also knew that Lonely Planet did have, and still maybe continues to have, you know, a bit of a, a diversity problem when it comes to the writer pool. So I was like, well, I can be somebody who has the ability to offer a different perspective than the majority of the people who are writing for Lonely Planet, which is mostly white men who are older than me. It's like, let me just do whatever I can do my part to just try to make this content more relatable for everybody. And so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. My mother's from the Philippines. I spent some time in Israel, like I said, and obviously I'm from the United States and there. I, I, did, I covered Georgia. I covered some uh, Pacific Northwest. I covered New York City. So these are all places that I have attached a lot of meaning to in my life. So it's, it's really been a wonderful ride to be able to go to these places and create this content for other people to go check it out. And you said your mom was Filipino and your dad, you're mixed race. So I am. Yeah. My dad's black. He's from New Orleans. My grandmother's Creole. And according to 23andMe, I'm 51.3% Asian, a little Native American in there, Sub-Saharan African and European. That's because of slavery, probably. (laughs) Probably, unfortunately, but true. So your dad, it sounds like he's a little Asian too. (laughs) <laughs> right? So that's how the math works. Is math is hard for me too. I'm also, as yeah. you know, a writer and editor. Is, yeah. is that right? Uh, no, my dad, uh, he's, he's African-American, Black-American and Creole. Yeah. But 51%, there's got to be... Yeah, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get the math. I, again, it's like, okay, I know my mother is... And I think there are some traces of like Thai and Indonesian in there and Chinese. So I don't know. Who knows? I just spit into a tube and and let them tell me what I am. (laughs) You're a beautiful mix of different cultures and therefore a great representation of how incredible travel is. That's what we'll say. You left a pretty stable, relatively stable, you know, <laughs> um, job as an in-house editor to go freelance. And you're still, of course, working with Only Planet. And I understand that you said you were lured by the good life, the fascination mm. and the excitement of being on the ground more often. And it sounds like you also feel like you have a responsibility to offer a different perspective to interweave your own cultures with how you're covering a destination. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just, you know, just by virtue of being in my own skin. And I think that's what, you know, everybody has something different. Everybody has some kind of different experience that they can bring to whatever kind of work that they're doing. And and we can all hold up a mirror in a way and, and give other people the chance to grow through connecting with them and just giving some different perspectives. I'm really lucky that that's literally, you know, what I do every day. Can you share more about the process of researching and authoring a guidebook for starters? Like how long do you stay in a destination that you're covering? It is a bear. I will tell you that it is huge. It's a huge amount of work. Lonely Planet is the world's leading guidebook publisher. So yeah, we have a massive beast of an internal content management system that has all of our narrative texts, all of our POIs, points of interest, those are, you know, the restaurants, the hotels, the sites, and things like that. And so I'm provided with 
all of the POIs and narrative that exist in the content management system for any given region. And it's up to me to go to these places and review this text and make sure that everything's still current from, you know, the practical details, opening times, prices to the actual review. Like, okay, it says that there's a stag's head on the wall. Is that still there? Okay, cool. Check. Or, you know, if I go to a place and it sucks, I'm like, okay, well, I'm deleting this because the last person who wrote this had a very different view about what constitutes a good pub than I do. So that's my responsibility now to shift that. So that's a big part of it. And then in addition to that, we have to find new places because things are constantly opening and changing and relocating. Every book that I do, my process is constantly getting refined and I'm learning new tricks. And this last book that I did for London, I was one of the authors out of five of us, I believe. Yeah, five of us. And yeah, I feel like this has been the tightest submission that I've had. It's a lot to, to really be efficient because, you know, you only have so much time, like based on the amount of places that you have to visit in every destination, you can say, okay. And I'll ask my editors, like, how long do you project that this will take? And they'll tell me and I'll factor it based on that. And then obviously I have to slot in some time for downtime or getting sick, adjusting to time zones, my depression, which takes me out. And I sometimes just need to lay in bed for a couple of days and binge eat and watch Netflix just to like give myself a break. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot. (laughs) How do you manage this? How do you maintain a good work-life balance? How do you manage work and exploration of your Mm. new home? Well, it is pretty overwhelming because, you know, it can get kind of convoluted when travel is your work because it's something that people do in their leisure time, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big misconceptions that I'm constantly having to dispel is that I'm on vacation because I'm not. Like, I can't tell you the last time I had a vacation, really. So it's really about just like giving myself boundaries and also just cutting myself some slack when I need to. Because if you are a person who works for yourself and you're a freelancer, like you're your own boss, you get to set your own hours, but you also have to be conscious of what your needs are and what your output is. Check out Trade Secrets, a new podcast from Travel Weekly and Travel Age West. Every other week, our editors will answer questions from travel advisors about their business, the industry, trends, and more. They're not doing it alone either. Veteran travel advisors will join them on each episode as they delve into whatever is on their listeners' minds. Subscribe to get trade secrets every other week or go to travelweekly.com slash podcasts. Masaveda, you briefly mentioned depression. Yes, yes. That is something that has just been a part of my life ever since I can remember. You know, I don't know if it's related to my mother dying when I was six or... Um, you know, genetics, like there's certainly some mental health that, uh, concerns that run in my family, but you know, it's the hand that I was dealt and it has derailed me, um, probably two significant times in my life, once at the age of 20. And then again, when I was, I don't remember exactly, uh, it was 2017. I don't know how old I am now. 30, yeah, like 33 ish. It's always been with me and it's something that I've always had to, you know, manage and kind of contend with. But yeah, there have been a couple of times in my life where it was truly overwhelming and I had to seek help. And I don't feel any shame in that. I think it's really important that people are are transparent about that struggle because so many people are up against this beast. And of course, I'm hesitant of being judged and, and, you know, people thinking that I may not have the ability to do something because I have this thing. But, you know, I think that in a way, it can also be a gift because it gives you this awareness. Like when you have survived, literally fought to stay alive because your brain's trying to kill you, when you overcome that, like that really is something that's commendable. And I know that there are so many people out there who struggle with it. And 
I don't see it as a curse. Really, I don't. It's hard, definitely, but it does, I think, give me um, some perspective and some insight and certainly a lot of sensitivity to other people's suffering. So there's no shame in that game. If you have a, a mental illness or you're struggling, like even if it's not something that you're diagnosed with, like we all go through bouts of depression or anxiety or or whatever, and it's totally human. And, and what really matters is that we're able to be gentle with ourselves and seek out the help that we need in that moment, whether it's just talking to a friend and just getting it off your chest or, you know, using medication, which I'm not medicated right now because I don't have health insurance because I'm a broke freelancer, but, you know, <laughs> I'm finding my own ways around that and right. natural, natural remedies and things like that. And just, you know, perspective really for me works and just knowing that it will pass. I've never been so depressed and stayed depressed for, you know, a really long amount of time. Probably the, the longest experience I had was maybe, which probably is quite long, like six or seven months. Um, like I said, there during that time when I was uh, my last year at Lonely Planet, like it was all I could do to just get out of bed. We had to be at work between 10 and four and any, you know, we had to work eight hours on either side of that. And I would be rolling in at 9.59, just a mess sit down at my desk, I'd be, you know, choking back tears while I'm answering emails and just, I'd have to excuse myself to the bathroom to cry. And, and you know, there were a lot of things going on in my life too. I'd been through a pretty tough breakup and, you know, I loved my job. I loved my team, but I kind of hated living in Nashville if I'm being perfectly honest. So I just didn't really have, you know, what had absolutely started out as like a wonderful life that I had sort of achieved working at Lonely Planet. And, you know, I had my first apartment for the first time and it just all kind of failed to be really enough to sort of feed my soul. And so I think that that also was a big driving factor in me deciding to make a change and go out and see the world. I think it's really important to take things day by day and, you know, adapt. Definitely. If you're feeling a certain way, overwhelmed or dissatisfied or whatever it is, like you made a change, like you weren't mm. happy there and you took a huge leap, like I, I said, sure <laughs> into, you know, a whole different type of lifestyle in addition yeah. to a, like a different type of job. Like it wasn't just your job title is impacted. It was the way you live, right? Yeah, everything, everything. And it was, you know, it was a big reach because um, financially it did not make any sense. And I'm still <laughs> fighting my way through that. You know, I've got debt up to my ears and that's something that I have to deal with. I can't keep, you know, avoiding that. And it took a lot, but I couldn't not do it. I couldn't keep going on the way that I was going. Like I had run the course of that. And it was beautiful and amazing while it was good. And then it wasn't so good anymore. So I didn't have a choice. Once I decided that I was ready to make a move, I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself, you know, six months. And I kind of not on a whim, but like in a sort of impulse, impulse direct message to my manager, I was like, we need to take a walk. And he knew like, like I grabbed a box of Kleenex as we walked out the door and his face dropped. I was like, okay. Oh man. Ugh. Yeah, but he was wonderful, so supportive and had been really, really there for me when I was going through all of this stuff with my mental health. Yeah, it was tough. And I'm so grateful that I got to maintain a connection with Lonely Planet and so many of the relationships that I built with my colleagues transformed into opportunities because I was able to go and update their content for them. And uh, I sort of had my pick, if I'm being honest, of, of the places I wanted to go because they knew that I knew what I was doing. And I think when you know how the process works on, on the other side, it makes it a bit easier to kind of know what your editor's needs are. So I'm really, really, really lucky that um, those relationships were able to evolve. 
it's really just about like making the most out of your day every single day. And when you know that you can't quite go the distance on that day, it's fine. Like the work will go on. You'll be okay. You're still going to meet your deadline. Even if you're a couple of days late, which I have been, you know, this isn't life or death. It's publishing. <laughs> I think everybody, everybody who works in publishing, it can feel like life or death because deadlines are just the like... The drama of it all. No drama, high drama, but it's like, y'all, hold on, perspective. Like nobody's going to die. We're not curing cancer. We're providing information and that's absolutely important. But, you know, if things get shifted a bit, we're all going to survive and we're all going to get paid eventually, hopefully. (laughs) That is one of the goals for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Unfortunately, I know you've experienced racism, sexism, and other discrimination while on the road. Can you tell us a little bit about those situations? Oh, the isms. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like you said, it's just a reality. Like we live in our skin. We are who we are on the earth and there are differences. And of course, there's beauty and diversity, but a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people are threatened by the unknown. And when a foreigner comes into their view, it's like, oh, well, I've never experienced this. I don't know how to act. I have these preconceived notions of these prejudices based on things that I've heard or what I've been exposed to. And yeah, there are definitely parts of the world where the culture is very homogenous and I'm very distinctly different. And, you know, some people that I've talked to who have had that experience, they revel in it because they're like, yeah, I am who I am. I'm a boss. I don't care what you think of me. And, you know, I wish I could be that resolute in who I am, but sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I feel, you know, I'm very sensitive, like easily overwhelmed. And it just hurts because I'm not, I don't mean anybody any harm. I'm just there to do my job. And I also recognize that it's all because of ignorance. You know, I feel sad for some people who haven't had the opportunity to be so exposed to different cultures in the way that I have and to be able to have that openness and that willingness to learn and grow because of differences. But yeah, it makes it tough. You know, uh, a particular experience comes to mind. I was on assignment in the Baltics. I was in Latvia and I went to this pub that was very highly rated by the previous writer. And it was a really cool place. Like it was, it was dope. It was awesome. It was just kind of like underground cave pub kind of thing in old town Latvia, old town Riga. And I go to the counter at the bar and I'm just trying to, you know, I'm reading the menu. I've got questions and the bar staff are just walking. They kind of half glance at me and they keep going. And I'm like trying to, you know, I'm putting my little finger up and trying to get the, you know, wave them down and nobody is acknowledging my presence. And meanwhile, other people are coming in on either side of me and standing at the bar and getting served immediately. And I'm like, this cannot be happening. And it's nuts because when you experience this kind of thing, like your first thought is like, am I crazy? Like, am I making this up? Like, is Definitely. this really happening? Like, Definitely. You, yeah. You, you know, don't you, want to believe that it's happening. You don't want to believe. You want to, th- you think like, oh no, surely it's just me. This isn't real. But, you know, finally I was able to get somebody's attention and like, I got served a whole bunch of attitude. And, you know, I had a question about like the beer or the cider or something. And she's like, well, it's on the menu. And she like pointed to the wall, but I was like, actually the one I'm looking for isn't written up there. Can I get a menu? Can I get any acknowledgement that I exist and that I'm here and that you should serve me? I had also, uh, while I was in Riga, connected with this person, this black woman who was a musician and she was in town. So, you know, we met up, we went to a burger place and we walk in and it's late-ish. We grab a menu and we go sit at the table, you know, a couple minutes to look over and see what what we want to order. And other people are coming in 
at the counter, then they're going and sitting down, but they're ordering. We didn't order yet because we didn't know what was you know available. We wanted to make a decision. And then we go back to the counter and they're like, oh, well, we're only doing to-go orders. I'm like, are you kidding? Like these people walked in after us and they're sitting down. And so it was so obvious that they didn't want us there. And honestly, as you know, like the majority of the time, it's, it's microaggressions. It's little snubs. It's a dirty look or just somebody ignoring you. But when somebody is like very blatantly making it known that they do not want you to be there, it's awful. <laughs> it feels horrible. And you're like, well, shoot, I'm not going to send Lonely Planet readers here because if someone who looks like me comes here, they're going to have a terrible time. The white man who wrote this review, this glowing, beautiful review, he obviously had a very different experience. So am I going to delete it? Of course, I'm going to delete it because if only white people are going to get served here, then that's not okay. And right. I have to do my part to make sure that everybody's having the best time that they can while they're traveling because you're investing so much. Like, Travel isn't a frivolous thing for most people. Like people are saving money for a long time. They're having to take time off work. And if they go and they have a terrible experience, like that's just really unfortunate. I would never tell a black person to not go to Latvia ever, ever, ever. But I will say, okay, I went to Latvia. This is what happened to me. I know other black people who have gone to Latvia and had a wonderful time. I don't think that there's any place in the world that's off limits to anybody, but you do have to be conscious that sometimes these realities do exist and you have to do whatever it takes to make sure that you're safe, you know, physically and mentally and emotionally. Considering these challenges, are you ever just like, excuse my language, F this, I'm not even really going to say it, F this, I'm not going to do this anymore? Maybe for a second, but like, there is a nothing in the world that is going to stop me from seeing it ever, ever, ever. Like that's just not an option. It's just, that's just not the way that my brain works. That's not the way that I was raised. That's not my worldview. Like, again, there's no place in the world that should be off limits to anybody who's got a willingness mm. to go there and to learn something from it because I'm constantly trying to expand my horizons and get a new perspective and learn and grow and meet people. So, Masaveda, I can't thank you enough for being such an inspiring guest on Humans of Travel. How can our listeners follow along all of your ventures? Oh, thank you so much. It's been really amazing. I feel so lucky to just, for one, just to get to catch up with you because it's been so long. Um, but yeah, I have some, well, my website is masaveda.com. I'm super easy to find on the internet. If you just literally open up Google, type in M-A-S-O-V-A-I, and by that I, you're going to see Masaveda. <laughs> You've done um, it before. Yeah, actually just last night or the night before because I was, you know, updating my website and all of this. And yeah, so you know, I've got my website, masaveda.com. I'm at masaveda on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook. So yeah, I'm out there. You can find me on Amazon, like everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'll add those links below uh, to the show notes so everybody can find out what Masaveda is up to. And Masaveda, thank you again. Thanks, Valerie. Wonderful to talk to you. Check out Travel Weekly's flagship podcast, The Follow by Travel Weekly. A follow, spelled F-O-L-O, is a journalism term that means to follow a breaking news story with more details and analysis. And on The Follow podcast, our reporters and experts will take a deep dive into the biggest stories and trends of the week. Subscribe to get the weekly follow or go to travelweekly.com slash podcasts. 